Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I am so excited to finally be publishing this episode. We did record it in the height of the COVID pandemic here in the United States. I just uh, had some difficulty getting things processed in the chaos of the times, but excited to finally be hosting this episode with Emily Shelberg. Miss Emily is a Marine Corps vet, a prior Team USA skeleton competitor, a current orthopedic sports medicine nurse practitioner, and a Tillman scholar. She's basically an all-around badass. She's also a mom and a wife. We spent some time talking about her experiences in the Marine Corps as a skeleton athlete and the difficulties of being a professional athlete while also maintaining a marriage and being a mom. And additionally, just some of the challenges that she's faced in the pandemic as a person working in medicine. Hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed recording it. I'm your host, Meg, and this is The Valkyrie Project. So thanks for being with us today, Miss Emily. Thanks for inviting me. On this Memorial Day of I know. 2020. I feel so honored. <laughs> it's really exciting to still be like doing this amid all the chaos that is COVID. And like, I'm glad that things are starting to normalize a little bit now. Finally, after what three months? Yeah, two it's, months. It's been a long haul, and it's it's cool that this platform gives you the opportunity to be able to interview people, even you know, when you can't be close. It's great. Yeah, and it was a good tool before, especially because there's so many interesting people that I would like to talk to that it just it's not feasible to fly out on location. And if I was like super wealthy and I had like the money to just jet set and go sit down with people in person, I totally would. Um, but yeah, technology is certainly playing its role right now, um, probably in a bigger way than people imagine. I, I don't even know how much money Zoom is making right now off of oh, all this yeah. madness. Yeah, that's real true. Yeah, I, I know our company was using them for a while and um, video chat and all of the different platforms because it's, it's the only way you can handle business right now. Mm-hmm. And what is your, just for the listeners' purposes, uh, what is your current business? What do you do? Um, so I'm employed by a hospital to be a, a nurse practitioner in orthopedics and sports medicine. Um, but we actually got redeployed. So I was working a COVID unit for the last uh, four weeks. And now, uh, because the numbers for COVID have dropped off, they've uh, switched me to working a floor for general surgery purposes. So I'm working as a floor nurse right now. Awesome. So it was an individual like you that helped me get all set up for my surgery right before COVID. There you go. Yeah, typically, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. I had... Um, a meniscus repair, and then a month later, an osteochondral allograft. Okay, wow. It's like partial knee replacement, I guess, in other words. And it was crazy just because right as that second surgery which that was happening, which, as you already know, is like super invasive, right as that um, appointment came around, they were like turning off all non-essential operations. So I got in just in the nick of time. It was crazy. Yeah. That's really fortunate. A lot of our surgeries that were considered elective you know, because they've been elective for so long, tend to fall into the non-elective part. At some point, you know, those surgeries become necessary. So luckily here in Maryland, they've started um, allowing us to do more um, surgeries. So it's starting to get ramped back up for sure. That's good. I just can't wait for everything to get back to normal life. I don't enjoy the fact that like every restaurant I'll go to from now on will probably have all the tables 10 feet apart with like a plastic screen between you and the person. Like It's going to change. Yeah, I'm not sure normal... um, kind of encompasses what we're going to go back to. We have for sure the way that we run our hospital and our waiting rooms and how we're going to do surgery and all that stuff is, is definitely going to change. I think, um, you know, permanently 
uh, for quite some time. I don't, you know, unless we find some vaccine and it becomes one of those like, you know, flu A or flu B kind of things. And, you know, for a while, we're going to have very, very different rules that we have to under, uh, operate under. Yeah, it seems a little bit, I don't know if cathartic is the right word or ton, like telling, but as I was checking in for my operation prior to COVID reaching the United States, they had like all these notifications on um, the surgery center's website that said like, if you have flu-like symptoms, stay away. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. there's, there's a vaccine for that every year. So oh, it's nuts. Well, we're going to get through this time. I'm staying positive, <laughs> staying connected with people on Skype and zoom and all the other things. Um, is it impacting your family in any way other than like through your work or, um, yeah, so definitely in terms of, we have a, a two and a half year old, so we used to send him to daycare, but daycare shut down. Um, so they're only just reopening now on June 1st. So we've had him home, um, basically for three months. And so, and I switched to 12 hour shifts. So basically I was working, um, three twelves and my husband would then work the three days that I would be home. And then we would have one day off, you know, kind of as our, our weekend, um, but the good news is, I mean, because we're at home, um, you've got a ton of stuff done at the house that we've been meaning to do. So there's definitely a bright side to being stuck in the house together. You get a lot of house projects done. So, um, we ended up planning a huge vegetable garden, um, and some other yard work and, you know, just, uh, together time. So I think, I think it's nice that we actually get a little bit more time together. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Glad to hear it. Family time is always a good thing. Unless your family's crazy. Right, right. And us. then you're even, you know, then you have the option not to visit them because it's COVID. Yeah. Right. I, I don't want to put you guys at risk. I better not come to this big thing <laughs> because COVID. But actually, you're all crazy. <laughs> Yikes. So I actually, for everyone listening, I came to meet Emily through Megan Henry, who was previously on the podcast um, and she highly recommended you as a person that I need to talk to because in general, we like to spread our network out and speak with not not to use a cliche but really it's it's true it's strong women right like ladies that have um served or in some other capacity found themselves in a position to be in like male-dominated career circles or um you know just generally overcome pretty big life challenges in order to be as successful as they are and, and to provide some sense of camaraderie for other females out there listening that might be, you know, athletes, female military athletes that are just like doing the thing and, you know, maybe feel a little bit alone. So I'm interested to hear your story. What's, how did you and Megan come to meet? What did you guys do together? What's your background? Uh, so I met Megan, she's a little, Megan's a little bit younger than me. Um, but in terms of how we met, so she obviously is, um, nationally ranked, um, internationally ranked athlete for USA bobsled and skeleton. She's a skeleton athlete. So, um, even though I'm older than her, I was a novice to the sport when I met her and she was, you know, well-versed in the ways of sliding. And, um, so I got to meet her about three years ago and we were roommates, um, as well as teammates for a couple of times. And we just really clicked. Um, I think the fact that we both had that military background, obviously kind of lends itself to meet other military personnel. There's something about when you run into someone, there's just a different attitude, a different way that people carry themselves. And so I think we both recognize that in each other. Um, but she really was kind of my guiding light through the sport. Um, I was not the best athlete and I'm also um, much older than the rest of the team. And I was um, pregnant slash had a baby while, while my, you know, during my tenure with this sport. So um, she was such a huge force in keeping me positively motivated and um, trying to get me back on track in terms of training and 
um, she saw a value where sometimes other athletes or coaches didn't. Um, so that's how we kind of became good friends. That seems like there's something to be read between the lines there. So it sounds like you were undervalued by the rest of the team and coaches just based on the challenges you were facing. Is that? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's always, um, there's, I, I'm not sure if it's the same for most female athletes who end up having children, but there's always resistance. I think that, um, uh, coaches in, in general, but also, um, you know, even if you were in the military, I think having a child puts you at an extreme deficit in terms of your peers. And, um, it's very easy to kind of get down on yourself when you go through, um, pregnancy and, and childbearing and child rearing. And, um, certainly if you're not able to kind of meet the standards or if you're having difficulty finding a way back to the, to your sport. Yeah. I think people tend to, um, maybe shrug off the possibilities of you returning. Um, and so Megan was always someone who kind of championed my efforts and it's not, it's not easy for sure, but you know, having a support system to, to get you back on track really, really helps. So yeah, she was definitely that for me. That's awesome. It's always nice to find a kindred spirit, especially when you're going through something difficult or new like that. I wonder too, if some of that response that you got or some of the challenges that you face were like that difficulty was amplified by the fact that there seems to still be this completely inexplicable mystery around like pregnant female athletes or women <laughs> who have just had babies. Like it's the year 2020. How do we not have you know, just in the industry of fitness overall and sport and competition have more of a foundational system or practice for you've had a baby. This is how I get you through that pregnancy and maintaining your fitness to the extent that's safe for you and the baby. But afterward now transition you back to that. Cause I mean, obviously, you know, as a woman, you have to be the one to carry the baby, but certainly, you know, male athletes have kids and can come back. Like, why can't we make this thing work? Yeah. I think there's a lot of, um, misunderstanding and a lot of unknowns about, um, the pregnant female body and, and even postpartum and, you know, through the breastfeeding, I mean, your, your hormones are, are not your own and they're meant to do something very different for your body. That is, I think almost antithetical to being an athlete. And so, yeah, trying to maintain your physical fitness and gain muscle and, you know, try to breastfeed and, you know, heal from your physical wounds from birth, um, are incredibly challenging. Um, and yeah, I think at this point there really should be, um, more awareness on how to do that as well as, you know, a basic guideline on, on what you should be doing in, in terms of getting back to it. Um, but again, most sports are male dominated. The coaches are male. You know, there's not a lot of understanding in terms of what's safe. Um, I think usually men tend to, male coaches tend to, um, side on the air of caution and they want you to be slower in terms of coming back and, um, yeah, I don't think they're they're very uh, educated on how to get an athlete back to where they belong. Um, but certainly, you know, it's not impossible. Obviously, um, having the support of your staff, even if they don't understand, um, goes a long way in terms of allowing you to get back to where you belong. Um, the irony was that if anybody knew how to do that, it's going to be you, right? So you know more about how you feel and how to get back to that with the appropriate guidance from your midwife or from your OBGYN or, you know, other people who have gone through it. Um, so I was lucky because I'm already a healthcare practitioner. So I kind of knew, um, a little more about it. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's room in, in, in sports for there to be, um, better understanding and better education for coaches on how to get athletes back to where they belong after, after having a child. Yeah. I think there's just 
there's a lot to be desired in general in, in the fitness and competition industry when it comes to training female athletes and doing what's best for them and for, you know, supporting their desire to have a family. Um, I was really grateful to have found the Dr. Stacy Sims course, the women are not small men course, cause it was really eye opening for me. And I've said this to other people I've talked to on the podcast, but it was like genuinely embarrassing that I've had a period my whole entire life and had zero <laughs> idea how it was act- actually impacting my performance outside of just, well, this doesn't feel great. I'm kind of tired today and bloated. Like it goes so much deeper than that. I didn't know. Um, and actually recently was really glad to stumble across this organization called Girls Gone Strong. And apparently in November of this year, they're launching a certification for uh, women in sport that looks a little different from the Dr. Stacy Sim stuff. It actually talks a little bit more about um, the importance of having pelvic floor health and, you know, those issues that are like a little taboo to talk about, right? Like, how do you approach your coach and say like, Hey, I pee myself a little bit when I'm doing these box jumps. It's embarrassing. It's slowing me down. How many women can say that they've had that situation? Probably a lot. Most, I think most women are particularly coming out of, of having given birth. And there's, there is some research to show that, um, you know, when I, when I was pregnant, I was going through, um, all my classes and talking with my midwife. She said, you know, I would expect that when you go to give birth as your first child, as an athlete, you probably have a very tight pelvic floor and it might even take you longer to give birth because of that tight pelvic floor. Dancers, um, horseback riders, you know, in general power athletes have a lot of muscle. Um, and you know, if you're not properly trained on how to control your breathing and how to relax and all those things that could really tear up your pelvic floor. Um, and I, I think a lot of women, even, um, postpartum women aren't even, uh, talking to their doctors about it. And they're not even aware of the fact that we have physical therapists that can help you, you know, develop those muscles and retrain those muscles. And it might be even a year or two after your pregnancy and you're like, you know, why, why does my abdomen hurt when I do this? Or why am I feel like I'm always stretching my cell as whatever it might be from, you know, diastasis, recti to pelvic floor um, insufficiency. There's tons of issues that just don't ever get addressed. Yeah, I'm certainly excited to be, you know, champ- championing Girls Gone Strong a little bit because they've already done some really good stuff in their, um, in their pre and postnatal certification. Um, this is actually the first uh, organization I found that actually is doing a women's specific certification that actually gives you the the continuing education credits as like a personal trainer through like NSCA and NASM. Like that's needed. It's the year 2020. Thanks. Like, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's act like we're t- training female athletes because we are. Uh, I could just go on forever about the frustrations in that department. Like it was, it was staggering for me to learn the, the lack of clinical trials for female athletes period yeah yeah i mean that's we're 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 not i mean all of science is based off of you know the 20 something male all of our research is based off of that uh the 20 something white male typically um and yeah i think it's it um there's tons of uh, holes in our research you know everything from cardiovascular medication to yeah uh, postpartum training that we just as a whole as society um in the scientific fields really don't address that's great that they have a program that can, you know, really, really talk about that. And it's, I think it's, it's essential for women to understand, you know, that again, like you said, we're not, we're not small men. <laughs> There's a lot going on with our hormones that change and affect the way that you can build muscle, become flexible, you know, strains and injuries. So that's, that's great. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to getting that certification done and I'm sure I'll have like 10 more topics to geek out about on the podcast <laughs> once that's, once that's complete. So stay it. tuned everyone. I'll be listening. <laughs> Excellent. 
So I'm curious, how did you actually get into the sport of skeleton? I actually saw some, I feel like my Facebook algorithms are stalking me or maybe my, I don't want to say her name because she can hear, but she starts with A and she lives in my kitchen and she's like my husband's favorite, but I can't stand her because I think she's spying on me. But uh, I started reading up about Megan and about skeleton and, you know, researching a little and I came across this cool page that was like, Basically, it's a reality show. It's like tryouts for the Olympic team. Yeah, the and next I was like, right. I was like, that's pretty cool. So, did you go a route like that, or did you just happen to make some acquaintances? And what did it look like? Yeah, it was actually really um, uh, quite random. So, um, to your topic, the the next Olympic hopeful kind of started after um, I got involved. But essentially, there was an ad on Facebook um, for. Uh, USA Bobsled and Skeleton Federation was holding combines across the country. And it was honestly on a lark. A friend of mine, big old beefy dude said, you know, I'm going to go head down to Hagerstown and I'm going to try out for this team and, and see what it's about. And, you know, he wanted to be a bobsledder and I was like, okay, I'll go with you. Um, and so I signed up and trained. And then a couple of weeks before it, he was like, oh, I was joking. I'm not doing that. <laughs> oh my <laughs> gosh. Yeah, man. So he threw me under the bus. So I was on my own. Um, so I showed up to the combine. I did you know, well, I, I didn't hit the actual cutoff to be invited to, dr- to the driving school. Um, so I went to the coach and said, Hey, I'm going to go to Ohio because I know I can hit, I've, I've hit the score before, you know, training on my own. Um, and I was just going to go to a different combine. He's like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. He's like, we, we want you on the team. We want you to come try out. Like, please like, don't waste your time. And I was like, sweet. Um, so ironically, um, I didn't get, I got invited there and then I didn't hear from them forever. And I've been talking to another girl who had gone through the program, at my combine and she had also been invited and she was, you know, getting more information, et cetera, and was getting emails. Um, so I finally called the head coach and I was like, Hey, like, why haven't I been contacted? And he was like, well, I don't know if you know this, but you're 30. And I was like, no, no, I'm very aware that I'm 30 years old. Newsflash. <laughs> Newsflash. Years I'm, old. I'm 30. Um, so it was, a, it was a tense conversation for about 15 minutes for me to kind of um, convince him that I was still worthy of, of trying out for the team, even though I was 30 years old. So um, there's definitely a bias and I understand it. Obviously, if they're going to put some effort and time and attention into you, they want someone who's, you know, young and has time to be able to do a couple quads or rather, um, you know, you know, enough time to develop. So um, regardless, um, I convinced him and I got to go up and really live the dream for a good three and a half years. So I got very fortunate. Gosh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's okay. I'm 34. So like, do I have one foot in the coffin now? Like, <laughs> you know, basically. holy smokes. Like, I mean, my body's partly only probably falling apart because of, you know, military service and like just trying way too hard to be a world-class crossfitter for way too long. And that's just that, that dream boat has sailed since forever ago. But like, yeah, yeah. There's man, always that, you know, there's that my life's not over. Your life's not over. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it sucks. We're still valuable. And I think there's also this there is obviously, I mean, you know, as, as a competitive athlete, there's a fine line between, you know, what we do to our bodies to be able to compete in a sport and, and learn a specific skill. And those aren't necessarily the healthiest options, right? So if I'm going to learn to do this one thing very well, my body is not meant to do this one thing very well over and over again. Right. Um, and that's, I think to your point, right. If, if we understand as younger humans, how the female body works, maybe by the time we are 34, we're not falling apart, you know, we're not having busted knees and, and whatnot. So Yes, I think that I think that's a really beneficial dream to have for future young ladies of America that, you know, their coaches in high school even understand what it's what it means to train a female 
or, you know, I mean, add to the fact that it's not just, you know, a difference in sex hormones and whatnot, but a teenage girl is a very different looking animal than a teenage boy, you know, and there are different challenges there to overcome, certainly. Um, but yeah, like, <laughs> here, have a healthy dose of ageism in, in conjunction with sexism. Like, right. that's just, <laughs> man, that yeah. sucks. I, yeah, and I think that was, I mean, the cool thing was that the Marine Corps kind of prepared me for things like that. So I didn't really, um, you know, I've, I've learned to not take, uh, just, you don't take no for an answer. Um, if there's no logical reason why you shouldn't be doing something, then no is not the right answer. If they can't give you a, a good explanation for the no, keep asking <laughs> because the only answer worse than no is no again. And you're not going to lose out by pushing, you know, and if, if it's something that your heart desires and you want to go for it, keep doing it. Just keep pushing. Dude. So I, I always ask people at the end of the podcast for some advice for our female military athletes, but you basically just have verbalized what I came to find as my mantra in detachment command times. Like the answer is yes. Until someone can tell you it doesn't make sense or it's illegal. There is a <laughs> make it happen and if the recruiter tells you that you need an out of your group waiver because you're too old call the sergeant major at the bottom of the mail per message because he'll probably take your packet because they're always looking for people our 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 ability to enlist people in the military is atrocious right now and you will find a way if you want in and that's what you want you're going to find a way no one's going to tell you no um for enlistment (laughs) we need people in our ranks (laughs) dude i could not agree more and i think too like there's a lot that plays into that, right? Like you, you're raised a certain way. You're raised to expect certain things. Um, perhaps if you were like me raised with a fairly healthy sense of respect for authority and, you know, not generally like the type of person that pushes really back or pushes really hard back against a person that's in an authoritarian position. Like if you're a civilian and talking to a recruiter, or perhaps if it's your doctor, your surgeon, they want to cut you open and make you different for the rest of your life. Like, man, it took some active, like conscious, mindful, like repetitions over many years to, to become assertive and be like, nah, all right, thanks for the advice doc, but I don't like that option. I want to talk to somebody else. Yep. Yeah. And you do kind of feel in that's, specific, I think, ex, uh, example, you're kind of pigeonholed, right? You've gone to the person, they are the expert, and they're giving you their information. And it's difficult to go against someone's expert advice and say, well, you don't, don't know if this is the best situation for me. But, um, and teaching, teaching assertiveness, it's almost, it's almost an unlearning process, right? As children, and especially as young girls, we're taught not to be assertive and to, to be submissive and, and to, to, to take no as the answer. And um, yeah, uh, again, I think ironically, the Marine Corps was really, really um, um, influential in, in, in teaching me to be my own person, stand on my own feet, um, stick up for myself, you know, that kind of thing. Um, some, even if it's hard getting in, once you're in the military teaches you great skills. <laughs> yes, man. I, I owe the army so much gratitude for that. And it's always really inspiring to, to meet the people that didn't have that struggle. And that just like women that are just naturally really assertive and just Wow, it's like you radiate some kind of like magical unicorn dust. How did you? No joke. Get that's that? impressive. Where did you get that confidence? Please share with the rest of us. I awesome. had some badass aunt or mom who like <laughs> shut them away, right? right. Like, yeah. Yes. Some feminist yes. from like the thirties. <laughs> She's like, I was there when we got the vote. <laughs> Carry the torch. Heck yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. So I want to. We're gonna circle back to the Marine Corps conversation for sure. But I was curious to ask about, you know, speaking a little bit more about 
authority figures and, you know, you having to kind of push the coach to give you a chance, like what ended up happening with your career in skeleton? Like, were you able to compete for a while before you got pregnant and had the baby or like, what did that, how did that career path kind of shake out for you? Yeah. Um, so when I first started, I went to driving school in 16 slash 17 and, um, you know, I was talking to, to the coach at the time, um, Don Haas, who, you know, said, yeah, I think you've got potential. I think you need, you know, everyone, um, the coaching staff, you know, wants you to stay. And they invited a bunch of us from that cohort, um, onto the team in terms of being a developmental athlete. I think it was called the elite developmental program at that time. Um, and, you know, I went back to my husband, I, I knew I was 30 slash 31 and we were kind of deciding, you know, if this was going to be a real thing where I need to focus on this for the next four you know, to eight years, where in there does a child fit in? <laughs> because, you know, we had been married, uh, Matt and I had been married for five years at that point, And, you know, had, had, you know, we always knew we wanted to have a kid and, you know, were we willing to wait eight years for that to happen and be pregnant and 40 and, you know, the risks that come with, you know, um, being older when you're pregnant and, it was kind of a pull the trigger or don't. <laughs> so we gave ourselves two months uh, to try and we got pregnant and I went to driving school from January, which is, which means you're on the ice, you're learning how to slide. Um, and I, I went from January to March for my entire first trimester um, until, you know, I finally went to my midwife and she's like, look, you know, you're starting the babies outside of your pelvic, um, you know, protection at this point, like you got to cut it down from lying on your belly. Um, and so that's when I had to go to the coach and coaching staff and essentially say, Hey, I'm pregnant. I can't, can't continue to train. So at that point, um, you know, things really could have been over. Um, if I hadn't kept pushing, I think the, the, the coaching staff essentially wrote me off at that point realizing, you know, Hey, I'm just fine. I can come back. Um, and so all through that summer, it was quite difficult to gain the attention of, and, um, you know, get on the distro list for emails and get in, into, um, some of the training camps in the summertime. Um, cause I was flat out denied from those, um, despite my persistence, <laughs> I missed a lot of summer camp training, um, uh, which was a total bummer for me. Cause I, I really was, you know, I wanted to be there and I just couldn't figure out which Avenue to push and who to talk to and how to make that happen. And, you know, I was also pregnant and that's <laughs> still very difficult to, um, figure out how to train while you, you got a baby that you're growing. So, um, you know, basically kind of trained on my own through that summer while pregnant, um, gave birth to my son, August in September. I know it's funny. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was like, Hey, you know, I'm looking to come back in the wintertime, even though I wasn't able to do your summer programming training, whatever. Um, so, uh, I started training again that following January, uh, three months postpartum August, right. September. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was miserable. I gotta say, um, again, it's, you know, coaches have a certain perspective about uh, pregnant and postpartum women and I was breastfeeding and I was definitely hormonal and I'm sure there were tinges of, um, you know, depression and anxiety, which I think a lot of women suffer from, um, after having a kid, but also when the thing that kind of defines who they are. And for me, that was athleticism is it feels insurmountable. It feels like you can't get back to who you were. Um, so I struggled uh, a lot through that, that season, the first, you know, three months of 2018, um, I had to breastfeed in between sessions. <laughs> you know, I was like leaking milk while trying to train. You know, I would come home and spend four or five hours trying to figure out my sled um, while my baby slept. And then, you know, in between I'd be breastfeeding and it was a hot mess, honestly. Um, so yeah, yeah it, it's a matter of continuing to just push yourself in positions where you just don't want to be. Um, and again, luckily, because the Marine Corps taught me how to be uncomfortable. Um, 
that was the only way I could kind of suffer through it. That and my husband um, kept, kept on just, you know, telling me you, you can't give up now. There's no way you can give up now. Like you got to keep moving. And if he wasn't there to, t- to take care of August while I trained, it, it would not have happened. Um, so even that, you know, the following summer, I still had difficulty getting um, the attention of the coaches and trying to get into the camps and um, routinely had difficulty getting emails and, and trying to get back on the, on the stick. Um, so I'd, I'd have to say my entire uh, skeleton career has really been a constant battle um, to keep moving forward, um, which is why even if I'm, you know, the fact that I'm on the team right now, I still got to compete. I, you know, at, towards, at the very end of my career, I still got to, to race for Team USA, um, which I'm immensely proud of. I don't think that many women in that situation, you know, with the uh, uh, attitude of, of, the, of the staff that was at the time um, could have gotten that far. Um, so that's one kind of, uh, feather in my cap that I'm, I can look back on and say, you know, I I made it through that very difficult time. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so my career was bumpy. Um, but just like anything, if, if it's worth doing, um, and you push yourself, then you will be rewarded for sure. I mean, just, you know, go ahead and like, tell us all how to live Emily after being (laughs) on team USA and being a nurse and in the Marine Corps, I'm pretty sure there is no thing that you can set your mind to that is not accomplishable. Like it's just, man, those are all three very, I would think highly, highly difficult, but very rewarding, very trying things, but very rewarding. Um, and it's interesting too, when you mentioned that your husband said you can't give up now, um, my mind immediately went to, it shouldn't have to be this way, but what stereotypes of female athletes would you have been reinforcing if you were to throw in the towel when having a baby? Because, hey, like everybody's got to live their life, and there are plenty of women that walk away from their career sometimes forever after having a kid. And like, bravo for living your life and make your choice, and I support your choice no matter what it is because it's your life. But there is that stigma. Like, after you've had a baby, you're you know, in mommy mode and, you know, the whole rest of your life revolves around this child. Um, and I don't think that's the case for everyone. And I think we really sell a lot of women short when we make that assumption. Like some of, some of the strongest people I know are like women that have had kids, but continue to live their own life. And why is that important? Not only for reasons like self self care and, you know, self actualization and all those things that are amazing about being human beings, but setting an example for your kids of, you know, what it means to live a full life. Yeah. And even though August wasn't, you know, obviously he's not aware of what I went through or how, how that part of his life went down. We've got, you know, videos and stories. And, um, it, I think too, the, the other influences that kind of color that stigma include, you know, members of the coaching staff and, and certainly I'm sure, you know, other people who are watching who, who believe that it isn't right for me to be out there doing that when I have a child at home. Right. So their perception is that and it's I none of your be- damn business. And I won't apologize <laughs> for swearing on my own podcast, but it's none of your <laughs> fucking business. Sorry. Yeah, I think, and, and, you know, it's so long as it's a mutually accepted, goal, right? So I had my, my husband to support, you know, and there were plenty of times where I got asked, you know, oh, where's August? Well, he's with his dad. <laughs> he's with his dad for the three hours that we're going to train. It's going to be okay. There's a second Probably. parent here. Exactly. It's not like he's abandoned on the road. Like, don't um, <laughs> so I have this disease where I visualize literally everything people say. And I just pictured like a baby in a laundry basket on the side of the highway, just like, yep. Yep. 
clearly if you're not carrying your baby on your hip, that's what you do with them. Like it must be right. Um, so that, you know, and <laughs> it was, it was definitely, um, and most people aren't very verbal about it. You know, it, it's more of like an attitude and it's more of a subliminal thing. And so, um, almost passive aggressive, um, at times. And, um, thank God I had the teammates that I did because, um, many of the male teammates, I had teammates that would help watch August, you know, like I would go to the gym and I had to do a workout or if I was, there were times where I would actually, I was, um, helping to pay for my fees by working for the track, um, doing, you know, passenger rides, or whatever. And so other teammates would watch August while I did that. And it was almost like a, a, you know, a net loss because I was paying for the, for the childcare while also working off the money to be an athlete. So, um, but again, these are the choices you make when you have a goal in mind and you, you just don't give up, right? You got it. You got to get it. Um, um, and August is great. I mean, he's, you know, he's not, he's certainly not worse for wear for having gone through that. So I love that name. That's awesome. He's going to, he's going to grow up and have those stories too. You know, that'll be a cool thing to share with mom. Like how many people can say like my mom did those cool things. Like yeah. my mom is basically Sarah Connor. What did your mom do? <laughs> I don't know. She's pretty cool, man. That's awesome. <laughs> So, man, there's so many, like, golden nuggets. I feel like we can talk for hours and hours. I'm going to try not to keep you all night because I know you got a life. But there's a couple things that you touched on that, you know, really just rung pretty true for me or are topics that, you know, I think people can certainly benefit from cracking open a little bit further. Um, you mentioned an identity crisis as an athlete, right, being, like, so, um, I guess, not having the compulsion but really just the drive to continue to, like, fit in that identity construct that you had for yourself after such a significant life change as having a baby. We discussed this in one and maybe both podcasts with Mark England of Procabulary, but essentially if you listen to the podcast, he um, works in helping people change their inner narrative to be more productive. And you know, a lot of what we talked about was identity and and how devastating it is when you can't maintain that identity, especially if that identity is no longer conducive. And I'm not saying that was necessarily the case with you, but um, it can be a difficult thing, right? When, when you see yourself a certain way, I had the same issue years ago, like constantly trying to be this pro CrossFit athlete on, um, on active duty as a Lieutenant, which is out of my mind thinking that was going to be a thing. Um, or, you know, he mentioned in, in the podcast we discussed, he was a really talented uh, martial artist and just continued to destroy his knees and wanted to keep fighting. And like, it basically it broke him. It broke his whole entire life when he couldn't fight anymore. Um, so he had to find something else. Were you able to resolve that? I don't know if it was a cognitive dissonance thing or like an identity dissonance, or just a frustration. What, what ended up coming out of that? What does that identity look like now for you? Um, so I think the way that, I mean, there's been a couple times in my life where I've kind of hit that wall, right? So, um, coming back from my deployment in Iraq and then coming into uh, Penn State University as a 21 year old, um, you know, coming into, uh, the track and field team and then the crew team, um, uh, I kind of realized, you know, prior to my deployment, I, I was a track athlete, like that's who I was. I had, you know, run for my high school. I had done very well. And so going to Penn State, that was the whole point, um, which is probably not the reason to go to college. But um, in my mind, before I deployed, that was my concept of here I am. This is Penn State. Like I get to, you know, be on this team and this is who I am. And then I deployed and then I came home and trying to fit myself into that narrative with the rest of this team. Um, I exhausted myself to try to be that person. Um, 
And I just came to realize, I can remember distinctly in November, one morning, we had a morning track practice and early morning. Um, and I just looked at my roommate and I said, I'm not going. Like, I'm just, I can't do this anymore. And I, I went into the track, you know, coaches the, later that day. And I was like, look, this is, this is, this is someone else's dream. It's no longer mine. And I, I just can't fit into this box we're trying to you know, get into. And um, it was devastating. I was so depressed. I, and my husband was deployed at the time. He wasn't my husband then. But um, so I had, I had nobody and nowhere to go. And I can remember being, you know, horrible nights under the table crying because I just couldn't figure out who I, who I was anymore. Um, and, you know, then I found another sport and I just kept on realizing that it doesn't have to be track and field. It doesn't have to be crew. It doesn't have to be CrossFit. It's I'm an athlete and I define myself by my physical abilities. And it's actually more fun that way, because then when, that way you're not trying to be the best at one sport, which is incredibly difficult and the odds are against you. But you are trying to learn something new and trying to push your body and see what your body can do in all these different outlets. Um, so from there, it was, you know, I, I that was the door for CrossFit, which was great. Um, and then in CrossFit, I found skeleton. And that was, you know, for me, it was just another way to try to see what else my body's, you know, physically able to do. It's fun to see how like, at, like athleticism and fitness becomes this game of shoots and ladders. Like what, ne- what next yeah, niche yeah. can I find? You know, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, and I can certainly relate, like, I'll have to apologize formally to the listeners for probably telling the same story I've told before, but fits well in this conversation. So why not? I'll never forget being um, at the unit one time. They they had this uh, sports psychologist and like mental performance coach come talk to the group. We were students at the time, um, and I'll never forget overhearing like this other captain um, talking to that person and saying like. I used to be this marathon runner. I, it was a whole extreme of consciousness starting with used to be, used to be, used to be, right? I used to love running. I used to be super competitive. I had passion for it. And now, you know, now that I'm in the army and I have a wife and kids and like all these other obligations, running's not fun anymore. It stopped being fun. I want to find that passion again. How do I become a passionate marathon runner again? And the coach said to him, it sounds like you're just really fixated on this whole marathon runner identity. And, you know, maybe you should just cut yourself some slack and find something else that you love that makes sense. And it was like, Oh my God. Like, just like I got, had gotten hit by a car because that was right around the time that just the CrossFit competition was no longer feasible for me. I was getting injured. I didn't have the time. I never had enough sleep anyway. Like I've been, I had been at that point sleep deprived for like a solid seven years straight since day one of raising my right hand. Like it was just, it wasn't feasible and it, and it felt like this just, I had this immense sense of gratitude wash over me. That was like, I have permission to do something else. And I was the only one that was keeping me stuck. Like it was really yeah. powerful. It's a, it's a huge realization that when you're, you know, you, you realize you're the one keeping yourself from fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, oh, damn. It's, not, it's not, it's not something outside, not external. It's if it's not fun anymore, what the hell are you doing it for? You know? And my dad, um, you know, he, I always relate to to him when I think of this because um, he's an incredible cook. He's always been an incredible cook. He loves cooking, and all through you know his thirties and forties, friends of him would be like, "Hey, you got to open up a restaurant. You got to open a restaurant. Like you'd be really good at his restaurant tour. Like you would." And he's like, "The second it becomes a profession is the second it's not fun anymore. If someone is paying you to do what you love, it's it becomes a, a job, right? And you run the risk of losing your desire to do that thing when you're forced to do it." And 
Um, for me, I know that being an athlete, the cool thing was that going into skeleton, it was a win-win situation. Even if I never made it onto a team, even if I you know, never got the experiences that I did, even if it was just for one year, I had already accomplished the things that I wanted to accomplish in terms of my athleticism. And this was just one more cool thing I got to do. Um, and so I knew going in and believe me, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a cakewalk the whole way, but to, to get to the point where I could say, yep, I, I, I competed for team USA. I wore USA on my chest and that's what I wanted. Um, you knew you were going to go through misery and the, Luckily, it was a sport that I don't have to ever do again, so I don't have to make myself miserable over it, right? Like, so yeah. it's such a niche sport. It was something I could do and then walk away from. And, you know, I would encourage people to to define themselves as an athlete versus X, Y, E, R, right? So um, lacrosse player or whatever, um, you know, find what it is about athleticism that makes you happy and continue to pursue that. I think that rings true for a couple other things. And I'm just going to, oh, man, okay, I'm going to pocket that for the, the Marine Corps conversation for just a minute, but I want to like touch on this other thing. Um, utterly, completely agree with everything out of your mouth, by the way. Um, so is it just me or is there some like messed, like, I don't want to put you on blast if it's not something you feel comfortable talking about and you can just say the word and we'll move on. But is it just me or is there some like really shady stuff that happens around the Olympic community from time to time? Like not everyone, but we've all heard those stories. Like, <laughs> The um, shadiness of Teen USA, especially the scandal that came out around, you know, gymnastics and all this, like, holy smokes. So, yeah, I think, you know, when you talk about um, the different federations that are kind of under the U.S. Olympic teams, um, again, they're all businesses. They're all run by people who, you know, have different goals and interests in mind. And it becomes contentious when you have athletes who are competing for a very, very small number of, of slots to get to the games. Um, and... I think within every federation, you're going to find that that problem, whether it's financial or it's cover-ups or it's you know uh, um, you know picking favorites or or whatever. I think there's there's so few resources and there's so many people, and that ultimately leads to um, you know issues. Um, it's not a altruistic uh, uh, program to begin with. None of them are, um, and so there's always going to be issues. Which is, which is what you want it to be as like an American citizen that gets to watch the games every four years. Like, yeah. And that's what you think of growing up when you, when you see your Olympic heroes, you imagine, um, you know, that it really is this kind of, um, Americana spirit and, um, it's not, it's a business. It's for sure business. And maybe I'm just naive probably. Um, but I didn't realize that Olympic athletes have to pay to compete or pay to be an athlete yeah because it seems like you you would think there's this entity that is you know kind of like being a collegiate athlete or a high school athlete you know you're representing the institution to some extent so you do the physical performance as an athlete but then everything you know your your uniforms and and travel and all this stuff generally comes out of this, this the institution's pocket because you're representing them it was surprising to me to learn that you have to find ways to pay to to get to train it's like how do you, how do you even manage that? You know, how do you hold down a job and have enough income to be an athlete too? Ugh. We should do we should do something about this, listeners. Write your Congress people. It needs <laughs> to be like a congressional fund for um, because if you think about it, that like in terms of like considering how a thing can be like service, for example, military service, you get paid to put on the uniform, um, but you got USA on your chest. You're still representing the higher organization, you would think that with all the financial resources that, you know, the government has, whether that's, um, 
being spent well or being, you know, wildly mismanaged. You can argue politics either way, I guess. Uh, it just seems like that should be funded through, through them. But anyway, um, yeah, I can't imagine how hard that must be. I doubt it though. I mean, in terms of finances, like, like you said, I mean, at least when you're in the military and you're wearing that USA on your chest, you are as equal as, as the person next to you and you're fighting for the same cause. And that is not the case in, in sports, right? Like you are, it's as much as you love your teammate, you want to beat your teammate, you know, you want to get to be the number one. And, you know, I I don't know if that's the same with the, the girls in the soccer team, whatever, but it's, definitely not the same um, camaraderie that you would expect. And the coaches don't treat you the same. You know, it's not like you have a, a captain or a CO that's, you know, treating their, their unit equally. It's, it's who's going to, who's going to get the gold yeah. so I can take And, and certainly it. the games Honestly. are packaged as like this unifying thing. Right. I mean, when North and South Korea are kicking it together, I mean, what else is a louder statement of like Huge, right. <laughs> unity? Yeah. This is global unity. Right. Oh man. I, I mean, I guess that, uh, it makes sense. It's a business. Got to stay afloat. All the things. So I wanted to, man, first off, coaches, be better. Be better about learning women. You know, it's funny, like, as as a coach, like, it's frustrating to see, like, the blanket prescriptions or, like, knee-jerk kind of you reactions that go into training women. Like, you know, each individual is so different. You know, gender aside, like, that's that's a relationship that takes a lot of like heavy duty attention and maintenance and um, man, I think we I think we as a society owe, you know, today's little girls and the women of tomorrow a lot more. But that's from a coaching perspective. Talking to other coaches, the challenge has been presented. The gauntlet has been laid. Coaches, try harder. Do try better. harder. And if if your athlete wants, you know, if you have a motivated human, take them, use them. Uh, you know, cultivate that motivation because that human is going to do everything possible that you tell them to do. And if you write them off because they're female or they're old or they're pregnant or they're postpartum or whatever, you're missing out on a great athlete. Yeah. And, and, you know, you never know what kind of potential you're just writing off. I will take, I'll take a highly motivated athlete that is just dedicated and, and has a heart in it, but needs some work all day over an entitled, like, large child essentially that's (laughs) just great talented large child yeah (laughs) with like you know all the ego no humility i don't want that person i don't want that soldier either i don't want that marine either like that's not how this works anyway so i digress let's talk about the marine corps um we were talking a little bit before about you know identity crisis i think i would think that people um, I think this can be confirmed from articles and, you know, things of read and seen about the challenges that veterans face when they get out, right? Like, what does that identity crisis look like as a woman that's transitioning out of the military? Was that a challenge for you as well? Or did it feel kind of like a natural, easy thing? Transitioning out of the Marine Corps was a little funky for me. So I went, um, I was enlisted, I deployed. Uh, with an all-male unit, um, came back and immediately wanted to do uh, the officer candidate program and go into the to the um, O course and do that. Um, so I did. I went to um, two six-week sessions over two different summers while I was in college uh, to become an officer. And after my last six-week session, um, I was getting ready to graduate. I had to wait to graduate from college before they can go to the basic school. And at the same time that I was supposed to graduate and go to basic school, I got accepted by Johns Hopkins University to go to nursing school. So um, two incredibly awesome options um, and a very, very difficult decision to make. Um, 
God knows where I would have been if I had you know, chosen the Marine Corps. I felt in my heart that I, I wanted to be an officer and I, I wanted to leave Marines. And I loved officer candidate school, which I know sounds crazy, but um, I, I it felt, does. I, 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 I know, it. I know it sounds <laughs> stupid, but I, I loved every minute of my time in the Corps. I really did. And even, even my deployment, every, every bit about it, I, I really embraced. And it was a hard, hard decision, but um, you know, I, I kind of knew transitioning to a civilian position was better for the long haul. And I was married to a Marine. So the potential for us to both be deployed and, you know, all that, the stickiness that comes with that. Um, Cause we had also already been deployed together at the same time in the same unit um, or rather in the same theater, different units. Um, so I, I think we both were kind of like, Ooh, it's probably not the best for our future for family uh, purposes. So um, I don't think I had a, I wouldn't say I had a hard time transitioning out of the Marine Corps. I had a hard time transitioning from deployment to stateside. That was pretty hard um, because the people around you, um, like, you know, we're such a small community of people who have been deployed that coming civilian side and, and hanging out with, and I was, you know, I was going to Penn state. I was with kids who were 19, 20 years old. And this is the first time they've been outside the home, you know, without their parents forever. Oh man. So trying to wrap my brain around the, idiot decisions that these kids were making. And I had just come back from a very, you know, serious situation and, um, trying to relate with them was impossible. I, I, into my own fault, I think I did not, um, seek the assistance that I needed in terms of, you know, psychological management from coming back from, from war. Um, I was definitely a jerk in a lot of perspective (laughs) in a lot of, uh, a lot of situations, you know, because I, I, I had no tolerance for, silly behavior. And it wasn't fair for me to project that on kids going through the college experience. Um, but at the time I felt like, you know, so frustrated that I had been through this experience, um, and they just couldn't relate. Um, so that was really tough. Um, I would say sports helped. Um, that was part of the reason why I I quit, um, track and field was because they, you know, Penn state takes themselves incredibly seriously when it comes to um, athletics. And, the team was incredibly serious about track and field. And I was like, dude, I just came from war. Like, I don't think this is that serious. <laughs> you know, this is like, oh, you're, you know, this is a little intense for me. Um, and so switching to a sport that wasn't, we were, uh, uh, the crew team was, um, what you call it? It's a, um, club tour. So I think that was a better fit. Um, you know, we didn't take ourselves so seriously, even though it was, com- you know, competitive mindset and, and, um, cause it's still Penn state, but, um, you have to find your group that even if they can't understand your situation or what you went through with deployment, they can at least commiserate over something else. Um, and so, yeah, I think that took probably the better part of six months to a year before I felt like, okay, like you can relax. You don't need to be such a hard ass about all these things. You don't have to, you know, take it out on your fellow uh, teammates or, or, you know, collegiate, you know, friends. It's not fair. It's not, it's not their experience. Yeah. I can relate to that. Certainly it's, it's so hard because you don't want to be, you know, as a person that like can't stand entitled jerks, it's like you don't want to be the entitled jerk, but <laughs> compulsion is strong yeah. when you've been so close to, to death and, and violence. And it's like, you know, everybody here that, you know, it would be really easy to make the unfair statement that everybody that's bitching and moaning here in the United States, like you have nothing to complain about yeah. when, you know, your, uh, your brother's head didn't get cut off yesterday for um, being of the wrong tribe or, you know, pick your poison, right? Like it's, it's so hard to come back and, uh, and take people seriously when they're like having their struggle that feels just so insignificant. Yeah. Like, yeah. really? You're mad, you're mad that the chick at the McDonald's drive through was mean to you? <laughs> well, yeah. I, I remember my husband distinctly when he, cause he was part of the invasion. 
Um, and when he came home, he was mad that there were, I remember him, he said he was driving past like a, a carpet store and he was mad that they were having Memorial Day sales for carpet <laughs> because he was like, that's not what Memorial Day is about. And it's like, well, for most of America, that is what it's about. Right. And it's, you know, it, you can't project your experiences and your frustrations and your anger on other people. And, you know, part of the reason why you went you know, overseas and you fought for your country was that we can have carpet sales on Memorial Day. So, mm-hmm. you know, you just can't. Yep. But and I think it's, it's a transcend it's a transcendent thing to, to, to get in that place. I think, you know, as you know, both of us being people that at one point were not, you know, understanding the other side of Memorial Day and coming into that as an adult. Um, yeah. It also, it, it feels in a weird way, like a, a privilege and an honor to have had the opportunity to see what that means if that makes any sense. Like, certainly I would never, ever, ever wish um, the demise of anyone, but certainly that sacrifice means so much more now. Um, and and it kind of gives some real fabric to the awesome stuff in life. Like, it feels really good to come home and feel secure um, that your house is not going to get bombed tomorrow and you have electricity and running water. And it just kind of it opens up this whole other world of perspective that I think... Unfortunately, a lot of people don't really get to see and, you know, again, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish death or war on anyone really. Um, but it changes you on a pretty fundamental, fundamental yeah. level. Yeah. Your gratitude definitely, you know, increases, um, when you have, when you've lost something for sure. And I think especially for people who are trying, I mean, my husband and I were just talking today, we, we kind of wish we could go to Arlington, but you know, we've got friends there and it, it the fact that we can't go today because it's only family members and, you know, COVID and it, it's a reminder, right. That our liberties and our freedoms don't come without a cost. And, you know, it sucks. We can't visit our friends right now, but um, again, it's just a reminder. It's a reminder that, you know, they definitely fought for something and we have to maintain, you know, those liberties so that going forward, hopefully we won't have to go through something like that again. Yeah. um, I think, I think it was pretty poignant that, First off, it's poignant that we're doing a podcast on Memorial Day anyway, but um, James Mattis came out with a uh, an opinion article. I, th- I don't remember which uh, magazine it was published in, but basically it said, you know, the best way you can celebrate is to to defend and stand up for this experiment that is democracy. You know, that's the ultimate honor we can pay the people that laid down their lives. Is participate be be a person that makes that democracy work it's still an experiment you know or at least educate yourself and i think there's there's definitely um i think people have a hesitancy to be involved in their in their local communities and state community you know state government but um if even if you have the trepidation at least be aware right read the articles listen to the newscasts turn on c-span see what's going on in, in your political sphere and it, you know eventually you will be motivated to do something about it if you're paying attention. <laughs> so in, in either way, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what your persuasion is in terms of how you vote or who you you know champion, but if you're paying attention, you will want to be involved for sure. Yeah. And the fact that you get to be involved speaks to a level that so much of the rest of the world just doesn't, doesn't Amen. have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So many people don't have a voice. Um, what was your, I'm curious, and I apologize if I didn't ask, or if I, if you said it before and I missed it, what was your MOS? What did you do? Uh, so, so I trained, uh, in the Marine Corps as a, uh, designator is 4341, which is combat correspondent or, you know, public affairs enlisted side. Um, 
I don't even know if that exists anymore because I'm not even sure we do print journalism anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, I was trained as that. Um, when I got out of MLS school, I immediately volunteered for deployment. Um, so I got attached as an individual augmentee to an all-male unit in New Jersey that was, um, they were artillery. Um, but they were being retrained as provisional military police. Um, so I actually deployed with them in order to assist with any of the prisoners who might have been, sorry, I don't think the word prisoner is correct. I forget what the term was that we had, we were using, but um, essentially any females that we came across um, in terms of having to. So this is like an unofficial CST thing. Uh, CST. What's uh, that? Sorry. um, uh, (laughs) Civil civil support team, which essentially means we have, you know, a direct action unit that needs a female to talk to females because of cultural barriers to you know, yeah. getting information yeah. out of women and kids. Yeah. So, yeah. So the, the unit itself was um, provisional military police and they were being split up to the different um, detainee facilities in the Anbar province. And um, the problem was because they were an all male unit, if we had any females that came into the detainee facility, clearly they weren't allowed to converse with them. So um, yeah, it was me and a ragtag bunch of other females. I think there was uh, seven or eight of us at the entire unit of, of men. Um, and the cool thing, I mean, it was a reserve unit. So most of the men were very comfortable with working with women because in their civilian life, they worked with women. Um, that wasn't to say that they weren't perturbed at the idea of bringing females into their all-male artillery unit. Certainly, there was a little bit of uh, frustrations with that. What do you um, mean she gets her own bathroom? <laughs> yeah, more, you know, and it, it was uh, it's sometimes surreal because you're like, dude, you work at, you know, I know you on the civilian side. Like, you work with women. It's not that big of a change. Like, you're going to be fine. And you're not operating as an artillery, so I'm not touching your weapons. Like, it's fine. You're not, <laughs> not traipsing on your, your marineness. It's okay. Right, right. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's how I got to deploy it. And, um, the unit itself, like I said, they were broke up into these different facilities. Um, and because I was, I had a combat correspondent background, my, uh, commanding officer decided to attach me to basically run supply, uh, to these different units. So I was part of a, um, convoy security operations team. Um, so I got to be a turret gunner on a seven ton and I got to go to these different, um, detaining facilities and, um, interview our uh, unit and publish stories and take pictures. And um, it was awesome. <laughs> awesome. It was great. Uh, it sounds like you you got to see multiple aspects of the conflict that, you know, aren't always accessible by everyone. Because sometimes if you end up with, um, at least from my experience, you know, public affairs can kind of like pigeonhole you into certain opportunities only, depending on what the conflict looks like. But it sounds like you actually got to, to be close to what was happening and get a vantage point that probably was not very available to a, a lot of female Marines. Yeah. I mean, the, the cool thing was I got to go to various parts of the, of the country um, instead of being you know stuck on a base, which I think would have been a different experience altogether. And I think a lot of the other females I, I deployed with had very different experiences than I did. And I don't think that they enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, the, the correspondence part of it, it basically was just an inter-unit correspondent. I didn't really send a whole lot to Divids. Um, a lot of what I did was just for our newspaper or our, um, our we had a cruise book, basically a yearbook for deployment. Um, so it was mostly in-house. Um, the only public affairs officer that I really came across um, was um, Major Megan McClung, which is one of the one of the few officer females who died in country. And she um, was killed in a, um, I believe it was an IED um, in her vehicle, um, while we were there. So we ended up, um, doing her, um, on our flight. Um, so no, I had a very, very different experience from public affairs, um, in general. Uh, it was great. I think, you know, having the opportunity to travel and, and see 
my whole unit in different aspects. Yeah, it was great, but it was certainly not what you would typically experience as a, as a combat correspondent. Very cool. It sounds like you had some difficult things to process, though, when you came home. Uh, I think you said something before about, you know, you wished that you had sought some some support, perhaps counseling or, you know, some form of counsel to kind of process your experiences. Um, like, was there, you know, without, again, like, I don't want to overstep any, you know, boundaries that you may have in terms of like talking about certain topics, but, you know, certainly there are other women out there listening that probably have been through some traumatic experience related to military service or otherwise, you know, and, um, uh, yeah, I, definitely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan talk about mental health. I think talking about men- mental health is is the right thing to do. I think it's super healthy to talk about your emotions. I think it destigmatizes the concept that women are only emotional <laughs> because it's not true. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, are you serious? Like, you have just, emotions. Yeah, I'm not like driven. My whole existence isn't driven by wanting to cry all the time. <laughs> Crazy, right? Breaking news. <laughs> um, so yeah, I I. I I, I think it was probably a little more difficult uh, because as reservists, once you're demobilized, you got nobody, you know, you're, you're, you're out. And I was, you know, I not only did I demobilize, but I went back to my unit that never deployed. So uh, I was with a bunch of Marines that didn't ever have the experience that I did. And I was separated from the guys that I had made great relationships with. Um, and truly, I can honestly say I never saw any of them again, unfortunately. Um, I never went back to their ball. Um, I never saw them, you know, outside of uh, the the um, redeployment stuff, um, which I kind of lament, um, because it is, I think it's incredibly important to, um, talk about your experiences and process with the people that you went through it with. Um, you know, uh, have you read the book tribe with, by Sebastian Younger? Mm-mm. No. So that's one book I would definitely recommend. He talks about, um, he was a journalist that got deployed many times with, um, military personnel, um, and definitely has PTSD. He talks openly about his PTSD, but he also talks about how, Native American tribes process those experiences in a very different way than we do and how it's incredibly important to, to their society that you do that. And I think they have a really great way of understanding that we don't necessarily have these um, mental health problems because we don't talk about them, but it's also because we've lost our sense of community. And if you don't have a tribe to talk about these things with um, and your community is taken from you, it's more of a psychological and emotional assault um, and it's harder for you to process doing it alone. Um, the saving grace, again, <laughs> my husband comes up a lot because he is my saving grace, but <laughs> truly having someone that uh, deployed at the same time that I did, who's gone through multiple deployments, um, his brother is you know, uh, a veteran as well. Um, we have our own little community that we can talk about those things with. And talking about PTSD uh, openly helps. And it is recognizable. You do know the symptoms. You can see it in each other. Um, you know, and even when it came to things like, you know, I had a terrible car accident not too long ago. Um, I can't say that I got PTSD from that, but I can definitely say that some of the emotions that I had following that experience were incredibly similar to those that I had coming back from war. Um, and I have a spouse that understands what those feels like, what that feels like. Um, so yeah, certainly finding your support system, staying in, in you know contact with the people that you deployed with, you know, stay part of the military community as much as you can, even once you get out, because they're a huge support system and they're really the only the people that are going to understand, you know, what you've been through and, and how to process it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I can completely relate to that. Um, my husband also was active duty when I was in, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of weird to be around like the dinner table at Thanksgiving and, you know, 
the flippant conversation of like, oh, the war over there and like, yeah. you know, <laughs> opinions are being lobbed off the table and you're like, how can like people that I love and respect this much just be so wildly short-sighted about what that actually looks like over there? Do you, um, I mean, you know, certainly I, I didn't have any, you know, I, I have not had a traumatic experience that would, you know, look anything remotely like PTSD, but I can say it was the craziest thing I've ever lived through in my life. Um, and an experience I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, but man, like to have people talk about like the, the politics of the conflict and just like, it's so, it's so strange to feel like people you're so close to are, are so far removed from something that you lived the whole time you were there, you know? And I think we also, as a society, there's this humanistic pride in cracking problems open using things like logic. But the reality <laughs> is we're still like a species of animal that, you know, depending on your you know, I don't want to offend anybody out there that, you know, is a faithful person, but like talking about specifically evolutionary traits, like there's no amount of technology or modern living that we will go through as human beings that can remove the need to have a community or then need to have people to talk to that understand what you're going through. I uh, hardly um, agree with that's, that. That's never going anywhere. Nope. Nope. And unfortunately, our society is kind of bending in a way where we are more and more and more separated from each other. And um, this concept of you know, putting ourselves in a, in a bu bubble where you, know, you can't understand me. You don't know what I've been through this and that, you know, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about, and it, it may not necessarily be the same experience, but we can understand the same emotions that we got from different experiences. Um, I'm curious, do you, did you ever find yourself after your deployment, um, having or forming less opinions than before you deployed? Like you just could yeah, not, no. right. You just, it's, it's hard to, I became far less, um, extreme in my thoughts because of those experiences and hearing other people who haven't deployed be so ardent in their beliefs. Um, it's definitely an eye opener. You realize, Oh, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I did or who, who is influencing the thoughts that I have? Is it, is it right? Is it someone that I want influencing those thoughts or, you know, what is my experience in relationship to those other opinions? Um, so I don't know. I found myself being more quiet about my opinions unless asked, and far more interested in listening to what other people thought and, and, you know, obviously kind of tapping into people who had even bigger experiences or more experiences than I did. It humbles you for sure. Yep. Same. And it, it's funny too, how the people who actually want to think critically about a particular question will ask you the person that's been there. What was that like? The person that wants to continue re-greasing the wheel of their own cognitive biases that have constructed their perspective of the world that is probably skewed and, and, you know, educated by very biased news sources. I'm like, well, I know you were there, but I'm not going to ask because I, I'm married to my ideas. And that's <laughs> certainly not the place we need to be in as a society. I feel like critical thinking is woefully underutilized as a tool for, you know, what should be like the more evolutionary, like development aspect of human beings, right? Like if, you know, compared to the Neanderthals, we actively practice critical thinking. We think about our thinking. There's in the year 2020, I'm sitting here talking to you and I can see your face over a screen. And, you know, I just listened to a true crime podcast about how they like discovered um, the origins of this person who had been murdered because they took apart the molecules in their bones to say, yep, you know, this particular isotope is from the Northeast of the United States. Like, yeah, whoa, right. <laughs> whoa. Why can't we, th you know, with all of this, why can't we think critically? I say we as, as a whole body, right? Like, 
Emily's a critical thinker. And I like to think I'm a critical thinker. And at least when I know I'm being biased and prejudiced, I yep. can say, yeah, I'm, I'm totally biased against that. I shouldn't say anything because I know it's going to be just woefully unfair because I have my feelings about that thing and I'll just turn away from it. But as a whole society, and you can even see it with this COVID thing, the way like devolving the way it has, like, how is it that we can't have a civil conversation about like the juxtaposition of individual liberties versus the government might actually be trying to protect you from a, like a pandemic, you know, somewhere in the middle of the two poles is the truth and we can't find it because the opinions are so loud. Yeah. And I think too, it's, you know, it, both of those examples, you know, the, the civilian having never really asked of the opinion of a veteran as well as, you know, the, the COVID situation kind of goes back to fear, right? So the veterans definitely need to be a little more vocal um, and a little more open to talking to their civilian cohort as much as they can, if they can get to that spot. I know for me, that was very hard and I needed my veterans around me to help me get there. Um, but also the fear, the, the problem is that we don't have a very good understanding about this novel virus. And so we must rely on the government. We must rely on, you know, other medical communities to try to lead us through it. And we, we have to find some common ground of our civil liberties and that fear. Um, and it's not an easy road to go down, but this screaming match isn't going to make it any better. <laughs> um, it's not working that way. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the funny thing is, you know, everyone demands protection. It's a right. The government should protect me from these things. Um, but everyone also demands freedom. And, and the ultimate irony there is that they are, to some extent, mutually exclusive. I can't protect you if I can't impose rules to facilitate that protection. Yeah, and I think a lot of people's arguments, I mean, as a nurse, right, as a nurse who's actually worked with COVID patients, um, it's terrifying. I was terrified to be redeployed in that situation. Um, one, I've never been a floor nurse, so the concept of being a floor nurse at first is terrifying. I don't know if any of you are going through nursing school, but I get it. It's scary. Like, And I went what's called a direct entry, so I went straight to nurse practitioner, having never worked bedside. Um, so that was terrifying. But then doing it while fully dressed in PPE, having difficulty breathing through my N95, um, and scared to death that I was going to bring this home you know, to my family, um, and watching people that I cared for die. Um, of course, in those situations, I think to myself, God, you know, I hope that we keep the government shut down. I hope that we don't, you know, get into a position where people are all over the place getting it. And this is the situation we, we end up with. But I can also see the argument of, you know, how can you let these big box stores be open and people are crowding these big box stores when the mom and pop shops, you know, who depend on their daily existence to keep their household running can't. Um, mm-hmm. And so there, there needs to be a conversation about that. How can we keep these businesses running fairly? Um and I, you know, I don't know the answer. I, I, I can tell you I'm just as terrified about having to work with COVID patients again and, and helping them um, survive some, such an ordeal. But I also fear for the people whose businesses are going under and they'll never recover. Yep. And man, I feel like you have some kind of like psychic, like plug into my brains right now. That's exactly what I was <laughs> thinking is there, you know, that the right answer is unknowable. And whatever, whatever we do, we're not going to get there probably because we're human beings and we're innately flawed. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just terrifying not knowing. And so, you know, I keep coming back to this place of, um, we talked in one podcast with, um, Cecilia Kraft, a mental performance coach. And, you know, the thing that I really liked that she brought up was staying inside your three foot circle of like, imagine, you know, you stick your arm out and you 
you walk in a circle and like that's about the amount of control you have in the whole world ever right here's my three-foot circle everything outside of that like probably doesn't deserve my bandwidth because I simply just I can't fix it I can't like Meg Cruz cannot fix <laughs> the COVID crisis you know what, I mean? what can I do I can shop at a small business um I can try and you know follow the rules that have been imposed um, by the people that are theoretically in a position of trying to protect me. Um, you know, I can still keep doing my job and creating as many opportunities with the small amount of resources I have for other people. Like, and that's it. And sometimes that just has to be enough. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. There's only so much I can do. And that's the same thing. Every healthcare, you know, provider knows that there's only so much you can control and what's out of your control Although it's hard to let go, um, you have to, to maintain some sort of mental stability, right? Every one of us, you know, the more you cogitate on things you can't control, the worse off it's going to be for you. Um, and trying to live through a pandemic, we're all in that position, right? And you, you're so right. What's in my three feet? What can I handle? Stay there. Stay there. And if, if you know, sources compel you to move beyond that, educate yourself as much as you can before you make a step. Yeah couldn't agree more you know I really do hope for for everyone's sake that like I think the biggest thing that scares me in addition to just like the shattering of the economy and so many people out of work I think the big thing that scares me most really is uh we've got a a bit of a mental health crisis in the United States anyway what is it gonna do to people if they have to send their children back to a school where they're not allowed to share toys or play in close physical proximity to other kids. What is that doing to adults right now? That, yeah, we, just, you know, we just had that conversation because August goes back uh, to daycare on the first and the rules that they put in place in order to you know keep ostensibly the community safe. Um, if I were a two-year-old and you, know, you required me to come into a building and my mom left me at the front door and a masked human took me back to a room where I had to sit in a certain position and all the comforts that were in that room, including pillows and blankets and you know, stuffed animals and whatnot were taken from me. And the, the concept of sitting at a family-like style lunch was removed. I mean, yeah, I worry for my kid. I absolutely worry for my kid and what that situation is going to be like. But I also know keeping him home with just his parents is not healthy either. I think, I think he, he did very well in daycare and, you know, whatever your choices are with how you raise your child, I think is a very personal decision, but I know he blossomed so much by being around other kids. Um, and so I want that for him and I I think it's important. Um, but yeah, I definitely worry about that. I think it's not just for the kids, but you're right. Like being alone as adult and none of us have been able to hug more than our family members. And God forbid, if you don't get to hug anybody, I mean, that does something to someone, you know, like if you can't have human connection, um, that's real hard on the psyche. Yeah. Um, I would think even more so for those that are redeploying (laughs) and are being told quarantine for three weeks. It's tough. It is so tough. It's hard. But the good news is we're very resilient creatures, human beings. So, um, you know, I feel like it's one of those situations where we're going to get through it because we have to. It, it kind of like I had this thought earlier. It, uh, I, I was thinking back to times when, you know, we had missions to accomplish with really short time and really short resources. And I just imagined, okay, two scenarios. First one being you have six months to build a house and you have $300,000 and you have a plot of land and you have contractors and crew. Okay, that's doable. 
Um, I feel like the modern military in the U.S. is in a position of you have 14 hours to build a house. You have no contractors, no supplies. Figure it out. And the only reason you have to is because you're legally obligated and also I'm still giving you a paycheck. Build the house. It's like, you know what? The foundation will probably be rickety. It'll have leaks. It might not have running water or power, but it's going to be a house because I have to. have to. You know? We're in that position right now. We have to keep going. And I think it feels it feels so alien partly because, you know, our generation outside of um, conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan have been going on for more than 20 years. Like, we did not grow up in the age of World War II and the Great Depression. And, you know, you don't your, know what it's like to go without. Yeah. Pick your, you know, travesty of human existence. But um, we'll get through it because we have to. Right. And we always ironic, do. Ironically, I think that the example that you give is essentially what all healthcare providers are going through right now, right? You're told that you need to provide the best care possible for the sickest of people without knowing how to do that. Also, you don't have enough PPE or you don't have enough manpower or, you know, whatever it pick your poison. What don't you have at your specific hospital on your specific floor? Um, so there's a, a lot of um, interplay and, um, um, cross commiseration, I think, with um, especially those who were forward deployed early on in wars where we just didn't have what we needed, um, and you were buying stuff, you know, off the internet to, to try to make up what you needed. Um, I definitely see a lot of that uh, crossover, and um, it is refreshing to see how hard we work for each other to get through those things. Um, nurses, specifically, being on the floor with nurses, and um, it, it's amazing. We just, you just do it. You just you make it up as you go and you keep moving. And, um, no one thinks less of you for not knowing the answer. No one thinks less of you for not being able to do whatever it is you need to get done. Everyone just throws their hands in and, and makes it happen. Um, I think that's the beauty of, uh, both the military and healthcare practitioners in general. Yep. Do what you can with what you got, but that's, that's enough right now. That's okay. So I think this is a good time to, to ask the question I always ask whether that be like one point or four or, you know, pick your number, whatever your favorite is, like what, what advice would you give to, we've got a following of female military athletes because that's what the Valkyrie Project does. We, we try to create programming to enable the women that want the tip of the spear jobs, that want to be good at their craft, um, which involves obviously being a tactical athlete in many ways. But um, we've also got other listeners out there, just women that are interested. Um, and we've got some male listeners too that are coaches and mentors to women. What advice would you give, you know, based on your life experiences in, in skeleton, as a nurse, as a former Marine, as a mother, you know, if you had, it's funny to say, if you had the opportunity to send this out into the world, you're doing it right now. Like 200 <laughs> people are going to hear this. Literally happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think one would be definitely don't ever take no as an answer as the first answer for sure. Um, it's not the right answer if it's the first answer for damn sure. Sorry to curse. <laughs> I'm drawing, I'm drawing a heart in the air. No one can see it, but you and I, but yes. That was not the answer. Um, to recognize that as females, you will always have to do more to prove yourself in a world of men. And unfortunately, nobody cares. Keep moving. Um, it's a hard pill to swallow, but you are always going to have to do more to prove yourself and wear it as a badge of honor. Show them that you can do what it is you need to get done and then some, and then ask for more because that's the only way you're going to get forward. And it'll make you better too, really. It sucks when you have to do it, but it makes you better. It does. Um, 
And the amount of pride you get from working that hard um, is something you can take with you, despite what anybody thinks about you. Um, so those are probably the two biggest ones, I think, um, especially young women going into the force need to know. Um, world's not fair, um, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're going to get what you want by putting in as much work in as you need. Yeah. Life isn't fair for anyone, is it? No, definitely not. Even the most privileged person you can think of, their life's not fair either. They just happen to be luckier or maybe maybe worked a little harder. I don't know. Yeah, no one cares work harder. I mean, someone cares. I guess. My my husband cares and your husband cares. (laughs) Yeah, maybe three have have a support network. (laughs) Right, right. Have have some support, but man, check that self-pity at the door, right? Life's too short. Try harder. Awesome. Well, uh, it has been an honor speaking with you this evening. Uh, I feel like there's there's so much I could talk for hours and hours, you know, and it's, and it's, you know, on a personal level, really fun for me to find kindred spirits, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles away that I've never met in person that, you know, I just feel like, you know, we speak the same language in a lot of ways. And so it's, it's really a pleasure for me to get to do this and share this, um, with others. But as you know, a person that's not particularly religious, but also, um, is very, um, spiritual, um, I will say God bless you and thank you for being, you know, thank you for being a soldier on the front lines of COVID as a nurse. Thank you for being um, a Marine. Thank you for your service. Thanks for being a mom that's like raising human beings because that responsibility is um, woefully like underrepresented, I think. Parenting is like the ultimate put on your hero hat and go like (laughs) make make an adult. (laughs) Make an adult. Um, And, you know, thanks for Thanks for wearing Team USA on your chest. I think that you've lived, gosh, you're still so young and you've lived an awesome life already. Like you've just checked all the blocks on everybody's list. So I think it's awesome. Meg, uh, thanks. The honor really is mine. And it's been really cool to talk to you, especially on Memorial Day. Um, yeah. And uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, I'm more than happy to, to be a sponsor um, with the group. Um, I'm not really cool on Instagram because I don't have a lot of time to take a lot of photos, but you're welcome to reach out. I'm E-T-S-C-H-E-L-Y. So come find me. Awesome. Thanks so much, Emily. Thanks, Meg. And as always, we want to hear from you. Reach out to us at ValkyrieProjectUS.com to send ideas, shout-outs, personal testimonies, or stories you'd like to share. We are also on Facebook and Instagram as ValkyrieProjectUS, so be sure to like and follow those pages to stay up to date. Do today what others won't. Do tomorrow what others can't. Thanks for listening.